0: Uh, this is the second lecture recording for uh, Chaucer's uh, general prologue to the Canterbury Tales. I just want to uh, make one small addition to what I was talking about in the last class, which is we had already discussed the knights, the squires, and the yeoman's profiles. I want you guys to turn to page number 142, and on this page there is an end note, end note number 26. Which talks about um, how the you know how the importance of the clothes that, they, that the characters wear in the general prologue and how the clothes become a representation of the social condition. We have already spoken about this, but uh, since I was out of time in the last lecture, so I there's just this one small thing that I wanted to add. The note actually reads that uh, this is from a particular uh, critic by the name of Terry Jones and he's written an article called Chaucer's Knight, the portrait of a medieval mercenary. This is a slightly different kind of a discussion about the knight not as an ideal character, the way that we have been discussing him, but the way that the knight would have um, either um, you know, agreed with or digressed from the uh, from the stereotype of Christian knights, who were basically mercenaries who fought not for uh, religious devotion, the way that Chaucer's knight does, but as a mercenary. And according to Terry Jones, uh, you know, there is there are ways in which Chaucer's knight can also be read as a stereotype of, as an ironic representation of such a mercenary rather than as an ideal portraiture. But there are very, very few critics who would agree to this. So we are going to take the uh, more commonly understood and acknowledged and accepted view of the knight as an ideal representation. Uh, however, there is one interesting thing that Terry Jones does talk about and he says uh, and I'm just reading out the end note to you on page number 142. This is end note number 26. I'm repeating for the third time now. Even Jones admits, however, the Chaucer's narrator is attempting to excuse the knight's shabby dress by explaining that he had just returned from battle. Jones's argument does not invalidate the main point here the Chaucer's narrator like Harry Bailey evidently sings a shabby array requires an explanation. So even though the knight is an ideal representation, he is an ideal character. And still, when you talk about, if you remember the word that Chaucer uses is bismotted uh, This is line number 76 on page number 55 in the knight's profile. And this word basically means that it is stained, his clothes are stained by the chain mail, and it is most likely a reference to the blood that is stained within his clothes, sort of seeped into his clothes because he's coming from a war and he's directly going on a pilgrimage. And Chaucer sort of gives us a twisted turn to uh, imply that he's so devoted that straight from God's work into the war field, he's going into the, uh, you know, uh, to a pilgrimage uh, to actually see God to a shrine, to a Christian shrine. Uh, and and still, you know um critics think that even in this sense um, it needs to be justified that is that is the you know that is that is the importance that clothes have as representations as representative symbols of social hierarchy and social rank which people sort of wear on their own person and on their own bodies and they become identifiable uh, as to belonging as to a particular class so we had talked about this in the last class and I just wanted to bring this up you can use Terry Jones's reference if at all this question comes in the exam uh, coming to page number 15 we were on the fourth um, um, on, on the fourth profile there was also a Nana prioris, that of Her smiling was full, simple, and coy. Her greatest oath was by Saint-Cloé. And uh, before we actually start talking about the Prioress, I just wanted to sort of read a couple of lines so that you know the Prioress actually belongs to the church. She is one of the people who belong to the um, hierarchy of the church. Now, uh, we have been talking um, at great length about, uh, you know, Discussing Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and especially the prologue as an example of his state's attire because this is where he gives the profiles uh, specifically the profiles of the different characters who are going to tell their tales in the main story. The Canterbury Tales are basically tales told by all of these people. The prologue is where uh, the narrator actually gives his impressions of all of these storytellers, all of these different people who've come together on a pilgrimage. Now uh, there is a very very important um, essay at the back of the book Gilman's essay, The Estate Forms. It's a classic essay. It is one which uh, you just cannot do without. If you are attempting an answer on Chaucer, you have to read this essay. Um, I've said this before as well, if I have the time uh, and um, you know, if resources permit, I will do a small lecture on this essay as well. But I want you guys to turn to page number 120 in your books. This is where Gilman is actually talking about the ways in which Chaucer digresses from the estate uh, satires. And I have spoken a little bit uh, about this, but the order in which the different, uh, uh, you know, in which the different characters appear, whether or not uh, that order actually confirms to the estate satire is one about which um, critics have been discussing and they've been debating for a very, very long time. There are some critics who believe that the knight has the right to appear first in the list of the characters in the prologue because he is one of the very few characters who are ideal. <clears throat> right, so um, there are a lot of critics who believe that the knight because he is, uh, he is as ideal uh, representation or as ideal a characterization as Chaucer gives us in the whole prologue. So he is, uh, it is, um, it is uh, right for him to be the first. But Gilman says that if one looks at the norm, which was the norm of the estate satire, one would actually expect the uh, readers, the audience of the estate satire would actually expect the clergy or members of the laity or members of the church in any kind of capacity to be represented first and then the knight and the squire and the aristocracy and then the working class. So there's a little bit of debate about both. Gilman's... um, Opinions are given here on page number 120. Um, the paragraph it starts with the second misconception is about the exact nature of the order which is being neglected in the prologue. right? Modern writers have tended to assume that the medieval perceptions of the class hierarchy were the same as our own. Uh, Tatlock for example found the characters mostly middle class. None is beneath the rather prosperous ploughman. On these grounds it is usually assumed for example that it is correct for Chaucer to begin with a knight that the prioress is of high status, and that the wife of Bath is middle class. The estate's lists show that it would be more correct for the clerical figures to precede the knight, and that despite the high rank achieved by some women, their estate is placed lower in the list than all of those of the men. The estate's framework is more concerned to distinguish qualitatively to separate clergy from lady men from women, than to arrange an exact hierarchy of rank. Cutting across these divisions, the estate's habit of distinguishing by function rather than by rank determines, for example, the treatment of women according to their marital rather than their social status, the undifferentiated treatment of burgnesses and the presentation of the lowest ranks of the clergy before the secular emperor. And this is an argument which persists in a lot of uh, Chaucer discussions and the argument, the the fundamental crux of the argument is this, if you look at the way in which people have been divided, the way in which Chaucerian society is divided, are they divided qualitatively in the sense uh, that their moral, uh, virtual, ethical values um, would be judged? And those who have more moral ethical values would precede those who have lesser of these, or a quantitative moralistic, uh, sorry, a quantitative analysis would be made. And those who have more material quantity uh, or material wealth, right? Those would have the upper hand. Now, that's what people like or critics like Jill Mann and Tatlock are actually talking about. They're saying that when readers from the 20th century or 21st century are actually reading Chaucer, there is a bit of what is usually called anachronistic criticism, uh, which is uh, employed, which basically means... So, in that sense, um, women would, in, uh, in, in a qualitative sense, women would always figure after the men. And um, even within the clerical hierarchy, one can very safely assume that prioress, who is a woman, would not be the first clerical or first church official who would be talked about. So, in that sense, Chaucer does sort of mix things up a little bit and uh, it becomes a very interesting study in, um, you know, in um, social representation but at the same time also one can look at this also as a difference in um, or one can look at this as an acknowledgement on Chaucer's part of, um, you know, of the difference in or the change in a changing landscape of the readership of uh, literature at all. Um, we'll start with the um, profile of the prioress. There was also a nana prioress, that of her smiling was full, simple and coy. Her greatest oath was but by St. Loy, And she was clipped Madame Eglantine, full well she sung the service divine. and. Uh, these adjectives like she was her smile was full simple and coy and so on and so forth and a lot of other descriptions of the prioress are going to be very similar to those made for and about the heroines of the um, of the romance stories Eglantine in fact was a very very common name for the heroines of the romance stories and in that sense there is a very subtle way in which Chaucer is sort of undercutting the religiosity which is supposed to be associated with a prioress. Uh, of course, you can't do anything about the name. But the fact that uh, the prioress uh, in the description of the prioress, the only things which get attention and the things which get the most narrative space in that sense are the things which are superficial in nature. They are manners or for processes of courtesy or of table manners or of representation, self-representation of physical appearance. Those are not things which you would uh, you, you, which you would associate with a prioress who was sort of like a nun, right? There was also a nun and this nun is a prioress, so she is a nun, her head is supposed to be completely covered, she is not supposed to have any ornaments on her, she is supposed to have given up worldly attachments but this prioress seems not to have done that at all and by describing her in very very pleasant terms but in terms which are worldly, which are associated with physical appearance rather than with spiritual devotion. Joseph gives a very slight undercutting and an ironic representation of the way in which the church officials like the prioress were not really ideal or the distance which they had achieved or distance uh, which they had travelled away from the ideal of what these church representatives were supposed to be. No, no, no. So, full well she sung the uh, service divine and tuned in her nose full, sol- full seemly and French she spake full fair and fetishly. Right? Um, uh, again, French was the court language, it was a language of, French was the language of court poetry and romance poetry. For example, the Romance of the Rose which Chaucer had definitely read and which is one of the influences for the Canterbury Tales um, in its narrative structure as well as in its sort of background historical impulses, you find a lot of similarities there. And, um, so the prioress, it's not necessary for the prioress to mm-hmm. speak French. If she knew a little bit of Latin, mm-hmm. that would usually suffice. But even so, nuns were not allowed to sh- nuns were not allowed to speak mass, which is why towards then the then end then of her profile, we hear that the you know uh, this is on page number sixty one, the last two lines. Another nun with her had she that was her chaplain and priests three. She has three priests. Usually nuns would travel with priests because they were the ones who could read mass. They were the ones who were allowed to study the scriptures, read out from the scriptures. Women were not allowed to read Latin or to read the scriptures at all. So even for women who were part of the church, they did not have access to the scriptures. They had to rely on the men to give them access to the knowledge of the scriptures at all. So uh, for the prior is not to know any other language but the language of romance. That is another, again another very subtle undercutting. Um, after the school of Stratford at Beau, for French of Paris was her to unknow. She doesn't know the French that is spoken in France, so she doesn't know French very well but she knows the French that is spoken at Stratford at Beau. and the reference to this is actually given on page number 58, please read it, it's fairly simple. At meat, meat is a reference to meals or to food. This is a word that is going to keep on recurring throughout the text. At meat, well, ye taught was she with all. She let no morsel from her lips fall. Now, um, medieval uh, table manners were very, very different from our current table manners. Eating with a fork and a knife was not very common even in England at the time. So they would eat with hand. The usual food consisted of... uh, a meat in some sort of gravy with breads and the breads were used to soak up the gravy which is why breads also became important Uh, and it was very common for these to fall on people's dresses it seems like a slightly silly um, uh, detail which also to give but in fact all of these simple and um, slightly silly uh, particulars were part of how people would be judged as they would sit down and eat at a table and so again the from the very beginning the description of the prioress is one um, you know is, is is of a woman who's who's um, who's very delicately aware of the subtleties of um, you know courtly courtesies and of proprieties of projecting herself as a lady which was seen as something that women of high birth aristocratic birth would do and it's perfectly possible that the prioress is one of high birth it was not uncommon for aristocratic ladies who were of high birth but did not have any money to go into the church orders to become part of nunneries or, in mo- or go into the monasteries. Ni wet her fingers in her sauce deeply, well could she carry a morsel and well keep that no drop ni fall upon her breast. So she, she, she knew how to eat so well, her table manners were so good. That when she ate with her fingers, knee wet her fingers, her fingers would not get wet in her sauce, uh, they would not get dipped in her sauce deeply, well could she carry a morsel? She could carry the morsel from her plate to her mouth and well keep that no drop knee fell upon her breast. And she could eat and she could take the morsel from the <laughs> plate to her mouth so that no morsel actually fell upon her breast so that she could eat while keeping her clothes clean. Again, that might seem like a slightly childish um, detail to add, but it really was not so. this was These were subtle ways in which table manners were gorged at the time. In courtesy was set full machal her lest. So again, courtesy is a word that we've heard many times being repeated for the knight as well as for the squire because they are part of the courtly um, you know population, they are aristocrats. And that's the same word that is applied for the prioress. It's a little bit courtesy could mean well, uh, you know, courtly manners. It could also mean a particular kind of personality. So uh, there, there is uh, so sort of, Chaucer is sort of uh, you know um, uh, going a little bit beyond what is really uh, proper here. But he says at the end of the prologue that he is only said about the. People, what they've said about themselves. So he's tried to be as objective about his representation of the people as possible. Her over lip wiped; she so clean that in her copper there was no farthing seen of grease. When she drunken had her draught, fulsimely after her meal, she reached; she wrought, and certainly she was a great sport. And full pleasant and amiable of port. Now, um, these lines might be slightly difficult to understand. In courtesy was she full much in uh, was said full much her last, as in she was very delightful. Her courtesy, her courtly manners were very, very delightful. Her, over lip, her upper lip she wiped so clean that in her copper uh, there was no farthing seen of grease. Uh, farthing is a very very small penny which basically means that she wiped her over lips so cleanly, she ate so well, she was so clean in her table manners that um, even the smallest part of grease could not be seen on her uh, tumbler in, in the glass from which she would drink. Um, Not even a little bit of grease could be seen on that. Farthing is just a measure which basically means even a little bit. So, even a little bit of grease could not be seen on the glass. That's basically what Chaucer means here. Um, Grease is from the sauce. When she drunk and had her draught. So, when she had drunk from her glass, when she put the glass down, there was no grease on it, it was completely clean. That's how well she knew how to eat in company. Fulseemly, after her meal she wrought, as in she reached, and um, and sickly is certainly she was of greatest spot. As in, after she had eaten well, she was very she, she was very happy eating a great eating good meal gave a, gave her a lot of happiness. Now, what do you expect out of a out of a person who is associated with the churches that when she has said her divine prayers or a divine grace, then she would be happy. No, but this prioress becomes happy when she has had a good meal. Uh, and uh, and full, pleasant and amiable of Port. Port is um, basically it means her personality was completely amiable. She was absolutely a happy person. And pained her to counterfeit uh, share uh, of court and to be established of manner. And pained her, this basically means uh, pained isn't she took a lot of pains. Hire is imitate she took a lot of pains to imitate the manners of the court, right? To counter counterfeit is to imitate the behavior of the court and to be stately is stately, which basically means again courtly, somebody who is high born. And so she took a lot of pains to show that she had courtly manners, that she could be a lady and to be holden digne of reverence. Holden digne is to to um, you know to represent yourself uh, like a lady so that people thought that you uh, that you were worthy of their respect and to behold in dignity of reverence but for to speak in of a conscience here conscience doesn't really mean morality here it means more a sympathy or a sensibility she was so charitable and so piteous piteous again doesn't mean the way in which we use the word nowadays it means she was so full of pity and she was so charitable well she would weep if she that if that she saw a mouse caught in a trap, if it were dead or bleed. Uh, which means that she was she, she was so full of sympathy that she she could weep, she could cry if she saw a mouse caught in a trap. Whether it was dead or it was just bleeding, it had not died yet. Of small hounds had she, that she fed with roasted flesh or milk or wasteful bread. But sorely wept she if one of them were dead or if men smote it with a yard smudge. Um, this means that... Um, of small hounds and small dogs had she that she fed. She had small hounds. She likes pets and these little pets she fed with roasted flesh. These were all delicacies in medieval England or milk or wastel bread. Milk was very difficult to find and so was wastel bread. Wastel bread was fine um, white bread. This was not something that most peasants could eat. but The prioress is well off enough to be able to give it to her uh, pets. But sore wept she if one of them were dead and if one of them died she was absolutely sorely upset, she wept a lot or if men smoot, smoot is to uh, to strike or to hit somebody with a yard, yard is a stick, Smirt is sharp so if, if any man, uh, if any person hit her pet she would get very very upset. Now all of these paint the picture of somebody who is very, very sympathetic as people ought to be. These are all virtues which are associated with femininity in medieval England as well as now. But what happens very subtly throughout this profile that Chaucer paints is that you move a little bit away from the kind of profile and the kind of characteristics and value, uh, va- ethical values that you would expect to find in a prior. as somebody who is associated with the church. She has a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of pretensions, she has a lot of courtly manners, but also all of her sympathy and all of her kindness seems to be associated with things of this world. So, uh, you know, these are feminine virtues, but not the feminine virtues of some of of a prioress or of a nun. Um, And all was conscience and tender heart conscience again, as above is sympathy. She was she had a lot of sympathy, she had a tender heart. Full seemly, seemly how wimple pinched was. Wimple is basically, if you've seen nuns, they wear this kind of headdress which covers their forehead. Now, showing off your forehead was a was something that only ladies did. In fact, a broad forehead was supposed to be the fashion of the day. So, women who had small foreheads would pluck hair out of their foreheads to make it broad, to make it, uh, you know, showing a broad forehead was in men it was. Uh, seen to be a condition of uh, intelligence or of wisdom and in women it was seen as um, as a representation of or as a symbol of beauty but it was absolutely um, I mean in that sense in that respect for a nun to show her forehead was considered to be completely inappropriate. Now a wimple is was a particular kind of headdress, so she is wearing a headdress but wimple is a pleated sort of headdress which actually shows off your forehead, it doesn't cover it. So she is keeping up with the uh, with, with contemporary fashion uh, but she's not supposed to, that's the whole point. Her nose treatise, um, her nose was well formed, well formed aquiline noses were again um, seen to be something... Um, aristocratic and associated with physical beauty. Her nose treatise her eye grey as glass. Grey as glasses again. This was a usual characteristic associated with uh, heroines of the romance genre. Details are given on page number 60. Please look them up. Her mouth was small and thereto soft and red. Uh, But certainly she had a fair forehead, again a reference to the forehead, I have already explained what it means. Her mouth was small, it was soft, it was red, again, not the kind of physical features, not the kind of descriptions that you would want to hear about a nun. It was almost a span brood I trow, I believe, it was almost a span brood for Hartley. She was not undergrowth. as in, um, you know, uh, he says that it was natural in her, this kind of courtly beauty was natural in, in her because she was not a small woman. Full uh, full fetish, fetish is full, neat was a cloak, as I was aware, her clothes are completely clean, of small coral about her arm she bare. Uh, and this small coral is basically uh, about her arm she bore, as in she wore the small coral, which is, uh, which is an expensive stone. A pair of beads, a pair, this is actually the um, contemporary word pair, a pair of beads, gauded all with green, as in uh, green stones, this could be a reference to emeralds, um, and thereon hung a brooch of gold, a brooch of gold full sheen. And um, the pair of beads is a reference to the rosary, the, the, the string of beads that people who pray use to keep track of how many times they've prayed. And it is appropriate for the nun to have a rosary or to or, or a prayer of uh, or a beads uh, you know uh, a string of beads for prayer, but it is definitely not appropriate for her to have one which looks so expensive, which might have beads interspersed with emeralds, or which can have a golden brooch. It was more appropriate for nuns and for people of the church to have crosses in their rosaries and that too not necessarily of gold because it showed uh, an inclination towards worldly wealth which was looked down upon, on which there was first writ writ a crowned A and after Amor Vincit Omnia. The reference to Amor Vincit Omnia is given here. It's a quote from um, the Latin poet Virgil which means love conquers all. When Virgil wrote it, it was um, written in a secular form as in a heterosexual pair talking to each other and saying love conquers all. But later on it was also incorporated to mean love for God as in love for God will conquer all. But uh, uh, there are many other, uh, many, many other Latin quotations that the prioress could have used for her or for the narrator or for the Chaucer to give her specifically this one does show how the prioress sort of blurs the lines in between the love for the world the love for herself a kind of narcissistic self love versus the love for god and in the case of the prioress of course it seems as if the love for the self actually overtakes the love for god uh, another nun uh, with her had she there was that was a chaplain a chaplain is somebody who accompanies a person um, and priests three she was traveling with another nun and three priests. I've already talked about what it means um, I will um, I will talk about the other profiles in the next um, in, in the next recording.